This is episode two of The Pundits, a podcast on policy, economics, and strategy. My guest today is retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan, and our topic is U.S.-Russian security relations. General Ryan, it's great to talk to you this morning, and I'd like to start just by going over a few highlights of your background. So you have over 29 years of experience in the U.S. Army as a defense officer. You served as chief of staff of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. You were head of the Moscow office's POW MIA commission, searching for missing Americans in former Soviet states. And just to list two other accomplishments, you served as senior defense attache in Moscow, and you founded the ELB group, which we'll talk about later. So through these experiences, you've collected incredible knowledge about U.S.-Russian relations. And I'm wondering whether you can start by just briefly going over some things that you've learned about negotiating with Russia. I'd love to talk more about the ELB group, which is an initiative that you've been working on through the Harvard Kennedy School. Can you tell me more about this group and the kind of work that it does? Thank you. 
U.S. and Russia, especially in the area of sensitive um, issues that involve intelligence and the military. Uh, the Elba Group takes its name from the Elba River. This is the place where the U.S. and Soviet forces met toward the end of World War II, a time when both countries uh, were still very much adversaries, but uh, they put those adversarial issues aside uh, to fight a common threat, which was uh, uh, the Nazis in Germany. And um, so we take that as our model, that that there are common threats, there are common issues that we need to cooperate on, even though uh, we may be adversaries in other uh, areas. So one thing that seems tricky to me is going beyond the ideation and the discussion phase and going into the implementation of the ideas. So taking the meeting that's coming up in March as an example, what will happen to the ideas that come from the conference after the conference itself ends? Yeah, well, we we actually start before the conference. Uh, So we'll, uh, just alone on the U.S. side, uh, some of us from the uh, Alpha Group will Schedule meetings in Washington. Uh, you know, we have a former DIA chief, we have former CIA people, former commanders of, uh, uh, you know, combat commands, former strategic command commander. And they'll they'll call their uh, successors, their uh, their contacts that are still in the uh, in the in the government or, or the administration, and they'll talk to them and, and you know let them know that we're having this Elva Group meeting and and. Uh, they'll discuss the subject areas that we want to talk about, and they'll ask if uh, if there are any subjects or areas that that those people want us to bring up, or any um, uh, insights that they are particularly interested in. Um, then we'll go and have the meetings, and then afterwards we'll write reports. Uh, we'll go back and talk to our counterparts again, and I can tell you that our reports go to highest levels at the State Department, the CIA, DIA, in the uh, National Security Council, um, uh, to NATO, to the commands in Europe, uh, some of the commands in the Far East. Um, So we share this information um, with as many uh, people as we can. And we know that the Russians do the same on their side. They've told us that they brief Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, Lavrov, they briefed the chief of the general staff, Karasimov, and others. Um, I don't think either of us has ever claimed that we briefed the presidents directly, we, and we're not a back channel. <laughs> Excuse me, we're not a back channel for presidential uh, discussions. But we're what's called a track two, and if you want to get into that, we can describe that too. But a track two is, is a common kind of non-governmental It's great to hear that the Elba Group's ideas are actually shared with people who can consider and implement some of the suggestions that you guys come up with. Um, Pivoting now to some more specific questions on the U.S. and Russia, I'm personally confused by the relationship between President Trump and President Putin. So on one hand, they've been accused of getting really comfortable with one another. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster was recently quoted and said, Trump thinks he can be friends with Putin. There have also been accusations of collusion by the public. But on the other hand, I've heard that tensions between the two are extremely high. So can you help me understand these conflicting reports? Well, uh, you say you're confused by it. 
that, and I'll tell you, you're not alone. Um, uh, when we meet with our Russian counterparts at the Elba Group meetings, uh, all the way back to, say, about 2016, when, when um, there was still a campaign before President Trump had become president, the Russians were, uh, I won't say desperate, but they were very eager to ask us, what about Trump? What is he thinking about uh, Russia? Does he want to meet with President Putin? Who is Trump and what are his policies going to be? And right on through that, uh, <clears throat> after um, uh, election and, and, and since, uh, they come back and they continually want to know what what, is, what are President Trump's policies. Is there a chance that the two countries will normalize relations? That's what they're seeking. And of course, I think they also are seeking along with their uh, the Russian government the in normalization they, they mean and they want relief from the sanctions. Um, the Americans, <coughs> the Americans, uh, frankly, are are uh, having a hard time explain, explaining uh, Trump's policy or strategy because it's it's not exactly clear to uh, to us in America. But here's what I think: um, President Trump uh, sees his relationship with President Putin almost on a purely personal plane. I don't think he uh, has in his heart the United States when he thinks about um, what his relationship is with President Putin. Uh, he, uh, he said many times before he was elected president that he respected Putin's strength and ability to make decisions in his system and to get things done. Uh, we know that uh, President Trump, before he was president, uh, wanted to do business in Russia for many years. So I think there are uh, a lot of things in his personal background or business background that, that made him interested in, in having a good relationship with President Putin. But I don't know if he's really got a strategy to leverage that on a state level. For his part, though, he's I'm sure sees the relationship with Trump more on a state-to-state basis. One of the Russians that I met with last summer, a former senior FSB officer, uh, had a great comment. He said, in describing what Trump is to America, he said, President Trump is your Yeltsin. And by that, he meant that uh, President Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin from the 1990s in Russia, that to the Russian FSB, Yeltsin came in, just you know, swept away everything that was there before, uh, and invited in the Americans uh, to teach them how to have a, a government. Um, and that led to uh, more democracy, for sure, but it also led to a decade of troubles for Russia, hyperinflation, wars in the Caucasus, um, all sorts of instability, uh Recessions, depressions, uh, 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 staggering reduction in military capability, and so on. Uh, under President Putin, that's turned around. I think the Russians believe that President Trump is like Yeltsin for us. He's alienated uh, intelligence and security elites. Um, he's uh, he's laughed at uh, in, on the international stage and sometimes. Uh, on the American stage, uh, so people uh, see him uh, with derision, maybe like like uh, many people saw Yeltsin.
liability for America and a weakness that they need to exploit before he turns over the reins. That's very interesting. I mean, based on what you're saying, there's almost a need for a distinction between U.S.-Russia relations and then Trump-Russia relations. And I think that happens with every president. They, you know, the president uh, has a the one-on-one relationship, but uh, the administrations also speak and talk, and they get a lot of things done, or, or not, depending on you know what the goals of the administrations are. That makes sense. So, moving on to something that's definitely been big in the headlines this week. The Trump administration said that it would stop abiding by the arms control pact with Russia, called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or the INF, which was signed in the late 1980s by Reagan. And this pact had basically banned certain land-based missiles. Trump touched on the topic this week in his State of the Union, which I'm sure you watched, saying that we followed the INF to a T, while Russia violated its terms, which is why we decided to terminate the agreement. Do you think that this was a smart move, and what are some of the implications? Well, I, I believe that it's a smart move. Uh, there are many who agree with that position, but I have to be, since I'm the only one talking to you about this on the, on the podcast, I have to give a word for the other side. There are many, many arms control people who think this was a terrible uh, decision because um, it, it took one of the two remaining uh, active uh, arms control agreements that we have, the other one being the START agreement about strategic weapons, it took that and, and removed it. Um, uh, well, I, I believe that it was actually a good move because, frankly, I don't know why or how you could stay in a treaty that the other side is openly violating. And we've uh, there's plenty of uh, articles out there that explain how we've um, come to that conclusion and how we've uh, given Russia many chances over several years um, to fix the problem. But there's also another problem, and that is that even if Russia weren't cheating on this uh, arms control agreement, there are many new technologies and capabilities out there that are undermining the, uh, the, the basis of our arms control agreements that we have, the INF Treaty and the START Treaty. We have new hypervelocity weapons coming on board. We have new warheads. Lasers are just around the corner. The drones are doing things that only... Uh, cruise missiles could do before, uh, and, and so on. Uh, these things are, and, and the multilateral uh, state of nuclear weapon power states. So uh, these things are undermining the, <coughs> the tradition, uh, the traditional Cold War era arms control agreements. And we need to, we need to go, get in there and fix that. We need to change how we do arms control. So this is just the first step in that process. And I think there's more to come. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like the agreement was becoming a bit obsolete or needed to be updated anyway. Um, on a similar note, during the State of the Union, President Trump did mention China as a country that he'd be interested in seeing join a new agreement. Do you think that there could be an agreement similar to the INF, except now between U.S., Russia, and China? to derail them, but um, I, I agree with the 
idea that we need to we need to start calculating and include other countries in our arms control uh, agenda, either doing it bilaterally with all the countries or multilaterally with a group of Bloomberg had recently published an article called With Putin and Trump in Charge, Risk of Nuclear War Returns. Especially given that the INF pact was just broken, does it seem like Russia and the U.S. run the greatest chance of war, especially as opposed to war with another country like North Korea? Well, I, I don't, um, I think today as we stand here, uh, that the risk of war with both either country is, is lower than it was, say, a year or two ago. Certainly the risk of war with Korea was uh, greater than any other possible conflict for the United States, outside the ones we're still involved in, by the way. But uh, with Korea, uh, that has subsided quite a bit. Um, I do think that uh, we're in tough times right now, and <clears throat> certainly if you're going back 10, uh, 20 years, we're in uh, worse times with Russia than we have been, but they're certainly not the uh, the worst times in our relationship. You know, in the 1980s, when uh, the reason that we came up with the INF Treaty that you mentioned was because we had uh, uh, we were in a crisis situation and we had uh, the potential for a regional nuclear war. In the 1950s and 60s, we were fighting wars in Korea and Vietnam in which the Russians and the Soviets were fighting on the other side. Uh, in Korea, anyway, in Vietnam, they acted as advisors, uh, mostly for air defense units. But uh, in Korea, the Russians were fighting in, in the war against Americans. So, and, and all that time, both countries had uh, huge nuclear arsenals, and today our nuclear arsenals are much, much smaller. So, I, I think it's wrong to think that this is the worst time but it's certainly the, the worst time in the recent history, and, and, and it certainly deserves our attention. We need to fix it. This is a more general question, but I'm wondering whether you can share one thing that you think President Trump is doing right with U.S.-Russia relations, and one thing that you think he's doing wrong. Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, one thing he did uh, right, and he did it in an excellent manner, and he did it early, was he created leverage over Russia uh, during the campaign. Uh, he was talking about how he would uh, come into uh, the presidency and be able to talk to Putin and, and uh, to get along with Putin and uh, to improve relations between the two countries. Um, this created leverage over the Russians because the Russians wanted Trump to be president then. And, uh, and we all know about the election doubling, but let's Let's put that aside. Uh, certainly, Putin admitted that he wanted Trump to be president, and that, uh, and we saw that the Russians were already modifying their behavior because they expected better relations with Trump. When Obama, President Obama, uh, threw out uh, uh, fifty or so Russians from the United States, the Russians refrained from uh, expelling. Americans from Russia, primarily because they expect a better relationship with, uh, with President Trump. So that's one thing that he did right. The thing that he did wrong is also connected to that. He didn't know or he did not properly leverage that um, uh, that advantage that he had. I don't think he has 
has a plan to leverage it. Uh, and I think that's disappointing. He could have uh, gotten us in a negotiation with Russia over INF or over other um, strategic arms issues. And he could have uh, uh, used the carrot of removing sanctions or partially removing sanctions, etc., to get something for the United States. But he didn't do that. So you have a long history of dealing with Russia, as I've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. What is the most interesting experience you've had in dealing with U.S.-Russian relations? Uh, well, I've, you know, it's hard to, to nail one down. Uh, I certainly um, have been privileged to uh, have the opportunity to do this in the military. And then afterward, as a member of the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School, and to continue doing it through the Elma Group. But uh, I guess if I had to say, uh, point out one assignment or one year in my life, it would be the year that I spent in Russia as the head of the POWMIA office looking for missing Americans in the former Soviet space. Um, in that job, I traveled all over Russia, <coughs> uh, visiting small villages and towns, talking to people in their homes, a lot of time in Russian cemeteries, uh, visiting uh, registration buildings and uh, mapping agencies and so on, and, you know, tracing down basically um, reports and rumors of Americans in that country. But in doing so, I had an opportunity to meet the Russians in their homes face-to-face and talk about many, many things. I found them to be so much like us. I grew up in the Midwest so much like us in the Midwest and elsewhere uh, that uh, it was a a real uh, privilege for me to get to do that. That sounds like an incredible experience. And of course, to say that you're an expert on the topic of U.S.-Russian relations is an understatement. I don't want to take too much of your time this morning, but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and sharing your experiences. It was a great way to start the day. Thank you, Kavi. I appreciate it. Good luck on the podcasting. It, 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 it looks good. I listened to Gary Seymour's uh, talk, and it was good. That's so kind of you to say. So thank you again for listening and for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again, and I hope to stay in touch.